whistling along, doing a little bit of acapella to the acapella theme. Woo! Howdy, listeners. Uh, this is the Arts Report coming to you live from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm Jake Clark, and we got a couple plum interviews today, some reviews of uh, The Orchard at the Arts Club, and uh, a book we actually got a while ago, but we uh, tragically got around to very recently, which is a shame because it's an excellent book. It's a knockoff eclipse by Melissa Bull. Uh, we're going to talk about that. But first, we are going to talk to our guest Jenna Brown, uh, a current panelist at the uh, inside the indus at the inside the industry event at the Real to Real Film Festival. Jenna, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Now, um, I, I I find this very interesting because when uh, we you you referred to us that the description used for uh, your job as an industry insider uh, is technical lead, and I really wanted to know what does that entail because you've worked on some very interesting things. Um, so in terms of my job, a lot of my job is actually helping people on the floor. Um, so basically, I'm their technical problem solver. So a lot of things behind the scenes that people don't really think about in animation is that a lot of times we build tools for them to use, things like, you know, almost like our own little in-house programs um, to make production go more smoothly. Um, so basically, we're here to, like, facilitate the artists and, like, help them be able to create the art that they want to create and make that easier for them in the long run. So it's sort of a very mutable job. Like you could be doing whatever, yeah, depending on what they throw at you. It varies a lot from day to day. So one day I might be helping the BG team, and then another day I might be helping... The BJ team? Uh, the BG team. Background, sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. BG, BG. I've, I've worked in background, and I was wondering, but you never know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I should have been... <laughs> I should have just said backgrounds, but... Um, so one day you might be doing that, and the next day you might, you know, be helping the compositing artists or the animators with something, um, because the problems also vary from, like, show mm -hmm. to show. So one show they might be, you know, doing really, like, textured backgrounds, and one show might be, like, a bit more flat. So it's kind of like finding ways to uh, help the artists be able to achieve what they want and, you know, make it just make their lives a lot easier. And uh, apropos of that, uh, you have a very interesting CV. So you solved some pretty interesting some problems on shows like, uh, well, the My Little Pony movie, um, the uh, Transformers at one point, and my personal favorite here, uh, the Apple NASA collab on Peanuts. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What was the sort of, what's, what's your favorite project or what was the strangest thing you ever had to sort of bring to life, had to um, help bring to fruition? I guess in terms of my favorite project so far, um, I'm, I've been really enjoying working on Dorg Van Dango. It's a collaboration with a studio called Cartoon Saloon. Um, they're a studio out of Ireland. They did um, the Oscar-nominated uh, film, The Song of the Sea. Oh, right. It's really good. Yeah, it's a really great film. has like a lot of like beautiful textured lines and amazing backgrounds. So I'm I'm really lucky to be working on that right now. Um, in terms of like the weirdest thing, uh, that's a, like kind of tricky. I feel like there was some pretty uh, interesting things we dealt with on the pony feature that were like pretty unique challenges. I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah, I would say um, in terms of just. Um, we worked with a lot of studios out of house, so getting uh, work from them and um, seeing how they solve problems and then trying to bring their work back into our pipeline was like pretty unique. 
Um, so there was a lot of like fun but really challenging stuff that came up. So I can imagine animation's obviously a very in-depth discipline. So yeah. there's a lot of contingencies you got to deal with. And is your work strictly with animation, or does your studio also deal with things like CGI for live-action films? Um, we did not. We're not dealing with uh, live-action presently, at least not in our particular um, studio location. Our studio does do live-action, but it's not something that I've particularly had to deal with. We do have a like 3D department, so we have we have 2D and 3D in our studio. So uh, sometimes we also have integration between the two. So for example, um, in the My Little Pony movie, we actually had 2D 3D integration. So there was, for example, this one shot where there's, you know, this uh, spinning interior, and basically we had to integrate it because there's not really a good way in 2D to do that kind of like sort of spinning rotating shot th that wouldn't take just ages for the BG painters to create. Yeah, I can imagine, because you're creating, well, it'd be like creating a VR image, wouldn't it? Almost. Yeah, it'd be pretty like much, yeah. Very in-depth stuff. Now, uh, as a panelist, in the event we're actually sort of talking about right now in Real to Real Film Festival, you're on the Inside the Industry panel. Yes. On April 11th, I believe. And that panel is about uh, breaking in sort of into the industry. Yeah. Now, now you're, you're a very young person. We're about the same age. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of want to ask, what in your experience would be a common probably the most common misconception about breaking in, about making a living in the creative industry? I think the one of the most common misconceptions is software, is that software is the uh, way in. Like, I have to know this software or that software to get the job, when I think a lot of it is certain core skills and even sometimes, like, soft skills. So things like being able to communicate and, like, also, you know, being able to just animate. So... There are animators who've never used 3D software before, but they, their work as an animator might be so strong. They're like, okay, you can learn this. As long as you're willing to learn the software, we can teach you because your 2D animation skills speak for themselves. So I think, I think sometimes people hold themselves back like, oh, there's no way I can get a job in this because I don't have the skill in X or Y. But I feel like there's a lot of things like software or particular things that you can learn on your own, especially in the digital age with, you know, online tutorials and things like that, where you can pretty much, like, if you want to learn it, it's pretty much out there. Never underestimate your own adaptability. Yeah. I would say that's, like, the main thing is being willing to learn and adapt is going to, like, really help in this industry a lot. And what is your personal story to that? Do you have a particular sort of um, progression that got you into this? Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like, a, I had a really weird progression, actually. So I basically started off in compositing. And then I went from compositing. For, for the layman in our audience, what is compositing? Uh, basically, you're taking. Um, and in the seat in front of you, come to think of it. <laughs> um, bas basically, you're taking um, sometimes more one images, putting them together. Um, you know, adding effects to it. So, for example, glows, highlights, sometimes explosions. Um, so that's something I did on Rescue Bots, you know, smoke and explosions and stuff like that, I, adding those into the scene. Um, so that's where I started. And then I've moved to other departments since then. Like, I've done builds and I've done QC and I've done um, different departments, like, throughout the industry. Um so I didn't really like have like a linear progression and some people really don't in this career I feel like some people some people they just start an animation and then they go from like animation 
junior to like animation supervisor and then like animation director like that's their path but for me to become a technical lead I think in the end I got there in this weird roundabout way because I had experience in all these different things and I was able to help people because of that experience. And how did you gain that experience like as being as this is a youth festival were you working like as what while you're in school or were you working on animation? Uh, yeah so when I was in school I went to Emily Carr um, and I took animation classes there and I also did uh, summer courses over at Capilano uh, and that's basically where I kind of like learned like the majority of what I um, am using in the industry today but I also did a lot of learning on my own um, because like for instance like right now in in the industry there's like a kind of a bit of a transition some of the softwares that were once used aren't being used anymore um, so you, sometimes you have to kind of go on your own and like kind of use your own motivation to like learn those other softwares hence the importance of being able to learn on your own yeah and following this, I suppose, do you have any personal advice to any aspiring artists out there? Anybody who uh, who might uh, want to get involved? So I would just say, like, keep practicing and keep going because I feel like there's all the resources and tools out there. I think it's just uh, keeping motivated and also, like, knowing that some of the things that you might not think are useful, things like communication hitting deadlines those are some of the most important skills in the industry yeah like just having that willingness to learn because um just i'd rather have somebody who's willing to learn than like a jerk who thinks they're amazing at the end of the day like being able to like have somebody you can work with makes all the difference in the world and i'd rather train up a newbie who's just like yeah i'm willing to learn and i'm willing to gain those skills than somebody who's like you know, I, I'm already the best and I don't have anything to learn because you're like, always learning. It's like in startups where you have, I hear this, I've been hearing this actually because uh, some friends of mine work in CompSci and in startups, it's more valuable to have, you know, uh, coders that can actually communicate with other people there. Well, in general, but startups is the example, rather than have one guy who's like, you know what, no, I, I'm, I'm a genius. I got this and what I write is illegible to everybody else. Yeah. Because that guy in the end is going to be more of a drag than an advantage. Mm -hmm. He writes brilliant code because, you know, he, he can't carry it all. Yeah. And I, th I think, like, some people um, might be like, oh, does that mean I have to be an extrovert? But I don't really see it that way. Like, you can still communicate via email or You don't whatever. have to, but it helps. Yeah. I think I think just, like, being willing willing to get the information out there will help you in the long run. Would you consider yourself an introvert? I would say I'm kind of a mix of both. <laughs> Ambiverted? Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Like there's, that's interesting to think about because I'd imagine that animation, especially computerized animation, is a discipline that probably appeals naturally to people who have a, more of an ability to focus and certainly this ability to bear down upon this medium. Whereas something like public radio appeals to people who can just keep talking until a dragon with seven heads and ten horns comes out of the ocean and the bells ring for the apocalypse or the trumpets sound, if I remember the book properly. <laughs> it's a different set of skills. Yeah, I think I, th I think the main thing is that, um, you know, like even if it's just in an email, because I feel like there's certain communication forms that feel safer to introverts, like just being able to say like, hey, just notice that this is missing from my scene, or like, hey, just have a question about this, it'll help you a lot. Okay, my, my, this, this character's supposed to have a head. 
yeah did, honest did, honestly just like did, even did like not? the most simple questions like that <laughs> like I, I it's better to ask them in the end and I, th- I think like even when you're going into a company of course you want to ask questions like about the job and about like what you're going to be doing because it'll help you in the long run fair enough fair enough now, uh, just to be clear, you're on the Inside the Industry panel if we want to hear more about this. Yeah, so I'm on, on the uh, Inside the Industry panel. So it's happening at the Van City Theatre, um, and that's on April the 11th, and it's um, during the Youth Media Conference event. So there's going to be that panel with me, uh, Siobhan from Double, uh, Double Negative, and Vincent from the National Film Board. And uh, we also have um, a documentary showing called Playing Hard, and it's about um, making games in the game industry. Oh. Uh, yeah. As And uh, we also... Rough, le- rough living. Yeah. We also have um, a uh, career expo that's going to be happening, so people can check out various careers in the industry and also uh, check out some VR. There you they, go. Yeah. Fun time. Yeah. Got to imagine pro- probably a great date opportunity. <laughs> like, hey, want to go to the career expo? Uh, and then, and then the other person deletes Tinder. Uh, oh my God. Uh, no, it was it, that. Sounds sounds like a terrific thing, Jenna. It was a thrill to have you in the studio. We're very glad about that, and definitely to our listeners, definitely check out Real to Real Film Festival, which is running from the seventh till I believe the fifteenth. Uh, it's it's a lot of interesting productions from youth in the Greater Vancouver area. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a short uh, PSA break, but when we uh, return, we are going to have a review of Orchard, the, the, uh, the play Orchard, and or an interview with Melissa Ferreira, who is currently walking into the studio uh, as of right now, because we're very organized people. Um, <laughs> yes, so we'll have another interview coming right after these messages. For the UBC farm, that's new. That's that's uh, that's interesting. Did you know UBC students get twenty percent off organic, farm fresh produce from the UBC farm? Come by the farm and eat local, really, really local. Supported by British Columbia's Buy BC program. Uh, we are so happy because. Fun Drive 2019 is officially over. What a great feeling. To everyone who donated their time, their energy, and their money, the people who forgot to donate now but will online at citr.ca slash donate, those who couldn't donate this year but will next year, and to our community as a whole. CITR and Discorder just want to say... That was a terrific use of thank you next. I really have to say in that in that PSA, because because when you censor it, it feels like there's something else. Like thank you, bleep. Just if if the next was in there, that probably would have been more appropriate. Uh, also, I, I the you know the farm ad will say second a banjo comes on. You know farm music. I really shouldn't heckle the people who make the ads. They really do keep this station going. Um, <laughs> Apropos of actual things, we have been joined in studio by Melissa Ferreira and our correspondent, Lua Presidio. Hello. 
Yeah, so if you want to just speak into yeah. the yeah. It's always good to speak yeah. into the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> as as uh, it also when the microphone is on, as as we've learned repeatedly Multiple on this noise. show. Yes, Jake. Yes. We yes. know. <laughs> Sometimes you forget yes. to turn it on. Yes, uh, it haunts me in my dreams. Um, cool. So you're here to talk about Nifty for 50. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. We're really happy to have you here. So it's happening on April 14th on uh, Main Street. And could you tell us a little bit more of what this event is about? Sure. Um, actually this event's been running for 12 years this year and, uh, basically we're just promoting local, locally designed, uh, art, uh, you know, art, clothing, uh, pottery, you name it, anything handmade. The really amazing thing about it, though, is is that everything's fifty bucks and under for one day only. So, and usually, how like what would you say the price range for these? I'd say like for accessories and smaller items, starting at forty to hundred, and for a lot of the clothing items, um, there's one designer in particular, Dahlia Drive. Her pieces can go for up to three hundred or to a thousand wow. even. So yeah, it's pretty. It's a it's a great way for people on a budget to be able to get their hands on locally made offerings for cheap, cheap, cheap. That's awesome. Yeah. And how did the idea of an event like this come to you? Or since you were the one kind of like that created it and, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it started with like four or five designers, basically. And um, the whole idea behind it was really just to get rid of prototypes and samples and um, old stock and stuff like that. And so in the end, we decided, well, instead of just like, you know, donating it or tearing it apart and starting over, why not just give it back to the to the people, right? So it's the only time of year actually where where my clients actually can get their hands on um, adhesive clothing stuff because I'm also the designer for adhesive clothing, um, which is all upcycled fashion and stuff. Um, it's the only time of year where they can actually get their hands on stuff for basically below cost, so... Yeah, and it just it it just like went off from there. Basically, for the last twelve years, it's built up a real huge following. So, yeah. did you think twelve years ago that this is where you'd be now? No, <laughs> <laughs> not really. No, it's cool to see it like that. It's gone on for this long and stuff, and um, it's a great way to like support the local like you know community, creative community and stuff. And um, you know, it's sort of a win-win. It's hard to make a living as an artist, so. You know, it's a nice way for artists to make an income as well as um, people, you know, to get their hands on on stuff they might not otherwise be able to afford. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where do you see yourself in maybe not 12 years, but maybe five years from now? (laughs) Well, yeah, that depends on what aspect of my life you're talking about. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Uh, with with this event. um, Yeah, I hope to continue like running it for another 12 years. Um, I do have like some pretty great helpers in my team that I have to say like, um, I don't know if it would have gone this long without, you know, uh, the the volunteers that help out and um, there's also a PR person who you're probably familiar with, Fawn, oh, yeah. who's pretty <laughs> awesome. So, Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I'm hoping that through time maybe it can develop to be able to host more artists and stuff just because we've got a waiting list of, like, 200 people or something. That want and to be part of it. Yeah, like, yeah, wow, and amazing. then our artists resign every year, so there's usually only, like, f- maybe five new spots available every year. So there is definitely a demand for for the community so it'd be great to see it expand do you think that your design style for your own brand is kind of influenced by like these connections that you're making in the 
Yeah, I'd say um, in a lot of ways that I think it's managed to go as long as it has because um, I've been running adhesive clothing for 16 years. And over that time, I also had a boutique for seven years on Main Street. So I made a lot of amazing connections with a lot of other artists and stuff. And so I think in a lot of ways, maybe there's there's some of them who might look up to me as being sort of a bit of a pioneer, I guess. And it's tricky being an artist and also a show, show organizer. But um, yeah, the flood of thank yous that happen every year is always like kind of a great reason to keep it keep it running, you know. Yeah. yeah. How would you describe your style, sorry, to someone as best as you can pitch a, fa- a, a, visu- a style predominantly operating on visual sensibility in an auditory medium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, it's all upcycled, so that means every single garment is one of a kind, and we're using uh, reclaimed fabrics. So um, I would definitely c- call it eclectic, uh, whimsical, <laughs> um, colorful. Yeah, every single piece has its own personality. So it's really neat to see who gravitates towards what. Like I've had a, everyone from 16-year-olds to I think my eldest client was 98. So oh, it's very like artful stuff, right? So it's it's almost I guess I'd call, I don't like to call it art wearable, but it's I guess that's sort of what it is. People get attracted to something because of the color or the texture or the pattern or print. So and is yeah. the style of the show very eclectic as well? Or I would say yes in a lot of ways, um, you know, because it's all handmade and handmade has its own kind of heartbeat and its own story to tell, you know, and I think that's part of what I love so much about the handmade uh, community, you know, everything has kind of a soul and a story. Um, so I'd say that people who come to Nifty for 50, they generally end up staying for like, it runs from 11 to 6, and oftentimes I'll have people running up to me being like, I've been here for five hours. You know, like, <laughs> I keep finding new things. I don't want to leave. So um, so that's cool because that, that definitely means there's there's something for everyone, and it's very it's a very interesting um, event to go to. Have you ever thought about having it in two days instead of just one? I actually did have it for two days for the first, I think, six or seven years that I was running it and um, what ends up happening with an event like this um, I think because a lot of people do realize that most of the stuff you'll find there is one of a kind they kind of like it's almost like a boxing day sale in April so like you get this like horde of like fans that like beeline it to the people they really want to see and then and then it's it's almost just like the first three hours are just like chaotic but still like you know everyone's getting along there's no like you know elbows (laughs) in the air or anything like that um, so it's a bit of a frenzy for the first several hours. And then I find that the second day was always kind of a little bit sort of hit or miss a little bit because, um, you know, sizes would be gone, but a lot of size size range would be missing. So the second day was always quite quiet. So I decided to keep it one short, exciting day. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And what's your favorite part about this event? Like My you've been running it for part. 12 years. What's your favorite part of something that over the 12 years has kind of stuck to you? Um, shopping. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of shopping there. Um, yeah. Um, I guess I don't know. All of these people are my like almost like family to me. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the artists that have uh, been in the show have been there since day one. Um, like Broncino, for example, she's been uh, she makes leather goods and they're really beautiful leather belts and purses and out of Italian leather and stuff. 
you got to go to her booth. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's been there since day one. So these so these people they're kind of, they're kind of like an extended family for me. So it's um it's really rewarding at the end of the day to to be able to know that I can help my fellow kind of artisan friends make an income and um they're they're all super grateful and they're all so talented you know it's just their talent really inspires me as well so it's great to have an avenue to see it progress and continue you know and that's uh, it's once a year only it's one day once a year wow. yeah so you don't want to like miss it <laughs> that's next like year will be april 19th i already have the date so <laughs> you got to wait another year if you don't come <laughs> this year there's stuff for guys too there's not a lot of not a ton of stuff geared towards men. I'm always trying to find things for men, but it's a bit tricky in the fashion world. I, I gotta ask this, um, as as the uh, representative of the the Y chromosome in this room, <laughs> um, what what would you say that I would be able to find to sort of complement my aesthetic? I don't uh, I don't know what you're into. Here. I don't want to make any <laughs> judgments. Like, <laughs> like it's uh, for the record, I, I look like a Mormon on vacation. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm nodding. I'm not nodding. I'm, I'm saying no. Silently, no. You don't. I've seen Mormons on vacation. You don't look like one. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Um, but there like, are some plaid shirts there, and it'll be in my selection for sure. Okay. So that that that, that might be it. And I do have. So there's a lot of. There's actually does um uh, a vintage uh, person selling vintage there. And then I also sell a lot of um, stuff that never ended up being uh, reworked. So there's a lot of like pretty cool like old finds. There's records and all kinds of like cufflinks. All kind. All, it's like it's like a flea market, but much more fashionable. Yeah. There you go. Like yeah. a flea market, but much more fashionable. Yeah, like a glorified <laughs> fashion garage sale. Check it out. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to repeat for everyone when it is and where it yep. is? So uh, April 14th at the Heritage Hall, which is basically at the corner of 15th and Main, 3102 Main Street. And it's going to be from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. next oh. Sunday. All right. That's terrific. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> it was it was great to have you in the studio, Melissa. We're going to take a really short ad break here uh, to get play a Friends of CITR and Discorder ad, possibly because we might have insulted the actual Friends of CITR by criticizing their ad work. Uh, and then we shall return to do a uh, review of The Orchard After Chekhov and The Knockoff Eclipse. You want to know what those are? So do I. Well, I read one of them, but still. Well, tune back in in 45 seconds. <laughs> so you're a member of CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts in Kitsilano and around UBC at On the Fringe Hair Design, Rufus Guitar Shop, Stormcrow Ale House, The Bike Kitchen, UBC Bookstore, Australia Boot Company, and so many more. Hello and welcome back. That's a good 45 seconds. Oh, this chair is low. <laughs> now, I, I know, right? We are now joined by our correspondent, Sarah, who is going to tell us about The Orchard After Chekhov, which is the arts club's most recent play. Yes, yes, it is. I, um, it's all very different from Red Patch. Oh, yeah, it is 
Absolutely. And as a person who has now um, luckily seen both of them, they are really different. They are both from the arts club, though. Um, but I would definitely recommend both of them. That's a... Anyways, that's besides the point. Um, so The Orchard After Chekhov is running until April 21st at the Stanley Industrial Alliance stage. Um, so yeah. this was... <laughs> okay, the thing is, it was not what I expected because um, it was two acts and the first act was pretty funny. I wasn't expecting it to be that hilarious, actually, because I thought it would be more... Like a drama? Because I thought it was a drama. Yeah, I thought it was uh, more of a drama, too. Yeah, like, from beginning to end, I thought it was going to be an emotional roller coaster, and I was prepared for it. (laughs) It was like, I'm going to cry today. (laughs) Yes, this time I am crying. (laughs) No, I did not cry. (laughs) Um, The first act was really funny. The second act on the other side was really emotional. And... I think that was uh, what made what made this play so unique because you start watching the play and you think it's gonna be you know all fun and games until the end, but then on the second act they hit you with emotional stuff and yeah and yeah it was great. So well, what is it about? So like. it is. <laughs> that's a really good question. <laughs> It is about this family, uh, Indian family. They live in Okanagan in Canada, and they are immigrants. Um, But the thing is, the mother has been in India for the past five years, and after five years, she comes back to uh, Canada, where Mm -hmm. her family is, and she was away with her, one of her daughters. And then, um, but, you know, everybody's so happy that they came back, but... The reason that she went to India was because her son um, died because she, he drowned. So he was still mourning. She was still mourning for him, and so she was, of course, changed when she come ba- came back to Canada. And the reason the name is the Orchard is because this family has an orchard, and it's what makes their home in Canada home for them. And so you see the thing is in the play from the beginning, um, there's this talk about the orchard uh, being sold, that it, if they can't find money, it's going to be sold, it's going to be cut down. So it's really emotional because they grew up there with that orchard with, you know, um, picking peaches and just you don't want a big part of your childhood gone. And that's what they've struggle through during the play and um what else was i gonna say for those unaware (laughs) this plot is clearly the plot of the three penny opera by bertolt brett um yeah, uh, it's just a very modern adaptation of that. <laughs> What's no. the that the opera about? Uh, the, that I was I was I was being facetious. Uh, this is actually this is an adaptation though of The Orchard by Anton Chekhov. Yeah, that's why it's called mm-hmm. The Orchard after Chekhov. It's a reupdate of yeah. the so Cherry what's the Orchard. original one. So The Cherry Orchard is basically this story. It's a story of it's been a long time since I read this play, and I don't honestly remember it very well. It's one of the most. It's Chekhov's most iconic work. Yeah. Um. And it's a lot of people would say, well, I mentioned the Three Penny Opera, Brecht, Chekhov, and who else? Shaw, maybe, uh, are often considered the most, the biggest innovators in theater in the past century. 
And I kind of agree with that. Like, just in, in terms that it, of the, the fact that it's very hard to imagine the theater of the past hundred years without them. And The Cherry Orchard is the reason that's the case for Chekhov, in that it is a story that is, is made that way and does deal with these themes, especially the themes of family and themes of loss. Yes. And I imagine this deals with that very strongly as well, because there's the loss of, of death, but there's also yeah. the loss of property and there's the loss of dignity. Yes, there's a lot of loss. And the thing is... Um, they deal really well with the question of what is home because throughout the play um, some characters say home is here in Okanagan, Canada is my home and then other ones are like let's go back to home and they mean India, they don't want to stay in Canada because that's not home for them Although the, because after the orchard being gone there's not going to be anything that means home to them in Canada So and as I, I mean, I'm not an immigrant, but as an international student, that I, I mean, you're related kind of like to that. A, a, I mean, not, but not it's full, not the Yeah, same, it's not the same, because yeah. you're not full on... I mean, my ultimate plan is to be a yeah. full-on immigrant. Hey, me too. <laughs> but... <laughs> hey, it's a, it's a nice place to be. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, because... Um, but at the end of the day, like, yeah, yeah, we are building our new homes yeah. here, and it's, like, it's difficult, and it's hard. Like, it's, like... So many emotions to leave everything we've ever, like, we've known our entire life behind and to just, because, exactly. like, I can't, I, both of us came here, like, honestly, I had never been to Canada before me in my neither. life. Yeah. I came here for university my first day of college, like, one week before my first day of college was the first time I stepped foot in Canada. Mm-hmm. I turned my back on everything I had and came here and I've just not looked back because I know if I look back, I'll have all those temptations yeah. of, like, was it really the right choice? Was it not? And I know in the like deep deep down that it was but I also know that part of me is like I kind of wish I was still there yeah every winter when I go back to Turkey I'm like should I stay here should I like is is it acceptable if I don't go back to Canada (laughs) but like every time I come back because you know it's much better here. Anyways, let's not get into that. <laughs> well, <it's now>. also, <laughs> when you have an institution calling you back, then I mean, that's that is something kind of beyond you. Yeah, that that is true. And yeah. now with this play, I have to think about that. One thing is not internationally, but I'm not from Vancouver. Like I'm from a different part of Canada, mm-hmm. so it's not as huge a move. Like there's not a huge cultural difference. Yeah. One thing I actually do realize by comparison to the states that Canada has actually got a pretty good continuity of culture because we're actually not a very big country population wise. Oh yeah, yeah. you're tiny. Population yeah. wise, uh-huh. like yeah, one exactly. of my cities is like the entirety of Canada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, 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 Lua, one of your cities has more Italians than most of Italy. Oh, that's true. Too. Oh, really? So, <laughs> also, we have the biggest uh, in my mm-hmm. state. We have the biggest um, black population outside of Africa. I can imagine, and oh, probably wow. one of the largest <laughs> Korean and Japanese expatriate populations. Japanese, in yes. I'm not Sao sure Paulo, about Korean. Yes. Damn. Like, there's like. Like the like the Brazil is truly a gigantic country. Like, oh, yeah. it, it <laughs> yeah. like I, I'm not even aware of how big it is. Like, <laughs> like just geographically, but also population wise. Like by comparison, Canada is of uh, of uh, is a a, a a very small child wearing his father's clothes because we have all this space and maybe like a hundredth of the people. Yeah. But it's there's a continuity there, and it's interesting because the farther west you get, a friend of mine who actually did a road trip west pointed this out, the less you feel like you're part of Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, so further out, like closer to Vancouver. Kind of, because one thing, too, is that when you're living, my friend lives in Ottawa, and I'm moving to Ottawa in mm-hmm. late April, uh, 
you definitely feel like you're in Canada because that's the nation's capital. And if they let you forget that, they wouldn't be doing their job very well. But also that Ottawa is right near the English and French-Canadian border. So that tension is central to, like, sort of the identity of the country. And that's, like, right there. But the farther you get, the less French-Canada becomes apparent. And that's just one thing that really became apparent to me here. In reference to this play, though... Uh, to to almost completely seag off. The interesting thing is that the cherry orchard is a ho- is about because I, I I had to look up a summary of it to remind myself mm-hmm. because again I haven't read this in a while. But it it is a play about a homecoming that kind of fails because it's also about the, a, a family that they do not n- sp- spoilers probably I'm assuming they don't end I- in a better position than they started. Yeah no. Spoilers, yeah. <laughs> and Chekhov considered this play a comedy, but it is it is optimistically a tragic comedy. Yeah, yes, that's what I was thinking, too. He considered yeah, it a comedy, yeah. like a full-on comedy? Well, he said that it was a far... In places... Uh, uh, literally, I'm looking at the Encyclopedia Botanica article here. He insisted that the play was a comedy, in places even a farce, and that playgoers and readers often find a touch of tragedy in the decline of the charming Ranevskaya family. That's the, the, mm. the family in the original. Which is... Those are Russian viewers. Like, that's yeah. a tragic comedy <laughs> here. Like, that's a tragic comedy in, in, in like, Western Europe onward... Like, this is a, a tragedy that has comic moments. And yeah. it is, I think, another thing that Chekhov really did really well, and I think this is something that translators and ad- adapters of Chekhov, how charming was the family in this one? The family? How charming? Um, like, were they really endearing? Okay, so some members, let's say, uh, was super charming. You were really, you know, invested in them. You'll love them. And there were one or two characters that you really didn't like. So mm. it's, I mean, that's only my opinion. There might be people who actually loved every character. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know. I mean, not, yeah. not every character. <laughs> yeah, like... no, yeah. But there there were some characters that were actually, yeah. But, like, did you feel invested in this family's life? Okay, the yeah. thing is, because the actors, I mean good job honestly they were so good they were so invested in their characters that once the play started you couldn't even if you wanted to think about something else you couldn't because the actors and the set the lighting the sounds everything was so in harmony it was so well done i can't stress this enough because there were a lot of attention to detail even the I mean, like, there were picture frames on the set because it's a house, right? And when they took off the picture frames, you would see the... Um, the outline the of the outline frame. The outline of the frame, yeah, on the set. I mean, it's unbelievable, the kind <laughs> of you don't really think about until you yeah. actually yeah. see it. And they're like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> and it was so good. And the thing is, like, um, this play was more of a classical play let's say because in red patch there weren't like sets there were just these boulders that they used to change sets and all that and there were these sticks that they used both as guns and i don't know swords and swords yeah and a lot like, of things um, but um oars oars yeah yeah uh, that, but that, that's part of the staging too because this is at the stanley right yeah yeah, yeah well exactly. that's uh, yeah like the, the stanley does have 
like you walk into the Stanley, you know where you're at the theater. You yeah, know? Like, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you're and, at the theater. Oh, I it's love that beautiful. feeling. <laughs> the set was so beautiful. It was so well done. They didn't change the set much. Um, they used lighting instead to you know black out some part of the uh, stage and show the part that wasn't blacked out was you know quote unquote set change and that was interesting too um yeah it was just great honestly i would 10 out of 10 wouldn't recommend go see it another thing that i realized is that the original cherry orchard is a play about land development where the old money is being bought out by the new money now that that, that play was written in 1904 uh for those aware of russian history the next few years kind of saw uh, a lot of more, a lot more contentious redistribution effort uh, put in place, but that tension was already very much there. And uh, I do want to ask this: like, to what degree was that involved in this? Oh yeah, it was because in um, the context of BC, mm-hmm, they were yeah. So uh, there was this one character, I don't remember his. Oh, Michael. Um, Michael is this rich guy who wants to buy the orchard and basically cut all of the trees and yep. build up there. Yeah. So that and Michael was, you know, really in the play. So you really understood the family struggle. They didn't want to sell because all um, because of both emotions and the feeling of home and also they just you know they found the trees being cut in order for there to be development a little absurd and well it's not the best way to it's interesting to think about that because this is an immigrant family that has clearly bought the land themselves and in the original they're aristocrats who've inherited the land Mm -hmm. so their attachment is entirely aesthetic and i think part of the because, funny thing, one of the most searched questions about this, is this a tragedy? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is pretty much, yeah. Like, uh, that's but, like, the... no. But, like, yeah. yeah. But, like, no. Not but, yes. According but, like, to no. everyone except Anton Chekhov, <laughs> yeah. Because, again, Russian. Um, in, but the, the value is kind of different in adaptation in that yes, case. Because yeah, there's very much skin in the game there. And I think what makes the original one kind of wistful and what makes, again, the theme of loss tangible is the intrusion of reality upon what is kind of this beautiful fantasy. You can see that, too, in Dr. Zhivago, except in Dr. Zhivago, uh, it gets real, really fast. Um, And in this one, I imagine it's got to be even more bittersweet because, well, uh, they came here. And they, they made themselves a home, and that is well, not to spoil, but that is not financially tenable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, you well, did spoil, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did spoiler alert. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen the play. When is this running? Uh, it's running until the twenty-first of this month. It is at the Stanley Industrial Alliance stage. Um, the show is at. 7.30 p.m. I don't know if they have any matinees. You would need to check on check that. It out. Check oh, it yeah. out. Take a night out at the theater. 
it, yeah. it's it would be worth it more than worth it <laughs> go see it and then the other thing i wanted to point out and remind our viewers or not viewers listeners because we don't have viewers because <laughs> no one's seeing anything <laughs> but um the also the other thing is that um what's it called red patch mm-hmm. was not just an arts uh arts club production it is yeah. a hardline production yeah. so they are yeah. new baby production yeah, company yeah, yeah, within yeah. themselves like within oh their, sort of like uh i imagine dealing with some of the tougher more yeah they try to uh specifically talk about marginalized voices and bring about oh. stories that aren't mainstream nice effort all right well speaking of which we're gonna have some interesting uh stories to talk about yeah. on the literary side of it we're gonna talk about trauma head by ali kralji gardner Kralji, Kralji, and the knockoff eclipse by Melissa Bull. After this brief message, smooth like silk. Do I voice this one? Yes, I do. Okay. Do you want me to voice it? I can yeah, voice yeah. It. Please voice That's this one. That's the wrong mic. Okay, <clears throat> I forgot. You f- dip. I can't believe I put up with this. And I asked for a grape soda. You hole. Okay. Due to a labor dispute, CITR is missing its star voice actors. That means if you're interested in producing PSAs, advertisements, and various other promotional wonders for airplay on the radio, we need you. Learn how to get involved with CITR's production department and all other facets of volunteering at CITR and Discorder Magazine at CITR.ca. Programming, photography, media training, and more. Plus, a guest star in the lounge. No, wait, we, we can't promise that. Can't believe I put up with this. What do you mean we lost our star voice actors? I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could do a, a variety of accents and impressions, many of which nobody has asked for. <laughs> like, five minutes of me improving as John Lee Hooker. Why not? <laughs> new segment on CITR. Yeah, it does. It does. Improv- it's just Jake's Jake. spitball's impressions. Oh, wait, he, that already happens. <laughs> Except we have reviews as well. Uh, when we get him to read things, it's a hoot. Guess what's happening? Sayers told Louise that ever since his book was published, uh, women kept assuming he wanted them to give it them up the ass. Now, what? um, that that's a, a so I, I I am joking here by uh, putting on a, a crude attempt at a French Canadian accent, which is, in my opinion, one of the least sexy accents on the face of the earth. Which one? Sorry, French, French Canadian. Canadian. I've actually, I actually don't know what French Canadians sound like because I live French, in Vancouver. French and I Canadian, yeah, yeah. yeah. sounds kind of like sounds kind of like this, you know. The problem is when I do a French Canadian, I sound like I'm crossing an Ontario hick accent a little bit, you know, sort of that sort of Letterkenny accent with sort of a Frencher accent. I, that's not really what it is, but to me anyway, I used to live in in Montreal where a lot of the knockoff clips by Melissa Bull takes place. Now it just sounds like an Ulster Irish accent a little oh bit. God, so. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in all seriousness, this uh, book is extremely from French Canada and uh, uh things just started happening with technology but we'll carry on um one of this and i actually i am joking uh, a, a bit about the uh, the french canadianness of the uh of the of the work so to speak but um it is actually quite evocative of Montreal uh, in a lot of ways, uh, and I, I still I used to live in Montreal. I had a lot of friends, and I have a lot of friends who are still who uh, I have 
one friend who is still living <laughs> one in Montreal. One. <laughs> well, a single friend. Yes. Um, and there, there are some stories. The, the one I just quoted from you, which probably need a content warning, but really, um, is uh, called Parc La Fontaine. And actually, I used to live right near Parc La Fontaine. My family used to live in a lovely house with a slanted floor uh, very close to there. And I used to skate at Parc La Fontaine when I was, when I was a wee lad. So this, is, this brought some things back to me. Um, I wouldn't call the tone of this... Uh, it's extremely Montreal in that Montreal is the city that has brought forth vice. Uh, and if you're if you're aware of that Montreal, which at this point I think is the main Montreal to be aware of, then you will have a feel for for this book. And this book is what this book remind what uh, Miss Bull's writing, which is which is quite good, which is quite evocative of some of the things about these various aspects of living, particularly these aspects of living um, within these small but coded differences between French and English Canada, because there's a lot of times in this book where she refers to the French from France accent, which is distinctly different from the French Canadian accent, and both of which are distinctly different from my impression. <laughs> um, and the the sort of inferiority complex French Canada has in relation to both France and to English Canada. Uh, and to, to, to get this, like there's some of the stories this starts out with, for example, uh, features like when there's a character named Loïc, that's extremely French name. It's in the story of Riviere Rouge. Um, you, you know you're in a very decidedly francophone milieu. And uh, the there's a couple things I wanted to spotlight about this collection. And one of them is that, uh, so the title story, for example, which is one of the longer stories. And I will find it at some point if I... If just... you go to the table of contents, it'll tell you the page. Oh, my God! Really? <laughs> yep. So smart, <laughs> Oh, my God! It's amazing! So it is a book of short stories. And yes. each story, are they connected or no? No. They're uh, pretty... I, they are connected thematically, but they're not connected uh, by content. And one thing that is, uh, I think is very worth noting about a collection of short stories is reviewing a collection of short stories is a lot like reviewing an album or, for that matter, a book of poetry uh, because both of them do have these disconnected installments usually operating on a theme. And if they're operating on a story, they do it within these demarcations that aren't like the chapters of a book. And the the titular, the story this is named after... Uh, the knockoff eclipse. The 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 name is a reference to the dress uh, a character wears. Um, is uh, probably one of the most evocative of the overall mood of the um, the piece in that it details uh, this sort of sensorily vivid, kind of grimy, kind of uncomfortable one night stand. Uh, and the stories deal with that to a degree in a tone that really reminds me of uh, Chuck Palahniuk. In that there's these very uh, evocative, uh, present tense descriptions of the senses. And her ability to turn a phrase is quite good. I, I, I did have a couple lines that kind of jumped out at me. Um, but there are also these intrusions of these different little devices in there. One of them uh, in the story Ice Storm is a character lists different classes of things, like different classes of coffee, filter coffee, church coffee, instant coffee, tea, and, and uh, I don't know why I did that. And then <laughs> another one is like the different flavors of prim, subtitle, prods. Uh, 
Prod's an, an Anglo-Catholic and uh, home Irish term for Protestants. It's m- basically a mild slur. Oh. oh the counter term okay. is Teagues for Catholics. And that's another thing that is recognizable is that French Ontario is Catholic the same way, but not the same way, but in a similar way that the 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 Black American community is strongly Baptist, in that the church is an institution that has provided a lot of organization, a lot of unity, and in things like the Quiet Revolution, uh, and also I will add in Quebec separatism, uh, Catholicism is a very com- has a complicated relationship with the rest of it. Another thing about Montreal is Montreal is also uh, has also a very large Jewish community, and that is not as not as present here, but Montreal is a city that has a very interesting and complex relationship with religion. And as as we've often diverged into on on here, that takes on the form of a very specific tension in that there is in Montreal, and I would say in Montreal, I would say culturally exclusively, there is a sense of you know what a Protestant looks like versus a Catholic. And that's one of the things that this book uh, actually does convey and to a reader here like in Vancouver to a reader who is not in I would say Montreal Ontario maybe the Maritimes uh, that that is a distant concept but it is there and that is very there it's it's it's, un, it's sort of this baseline in interactions with French Canada and I found that very interesting and to me as an Ontarian who's lived in Montreal and now resides in neither and will reside on a in a place <laughs> in one and very close to the other it's interesting to think about that because it's a huge Canadian thing. Like French Canadian is considered like an, an ethnicity to some. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a cultural group. And that's considered that by people outside of Canada, including the Americans. Like, like the, there's a lot of French Canadian expats in Massachusetts and Vermont. Jack Kerouac was one of them. A lot, of people, a lot of people have pointed that out, is that Jack Kerouac wrote on the road originally in French, because when you're cranked cranked up on speed and drunk as a lord, you might resort to your first language. <laughs> That's one, what I found very interesting about this. One thing I don't, I, I haven't read the f- book, but um, the cover does disturb me a little bit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the cover is a bald porcelain baby doll with a cigarette hanging out of its mouth. Yeah, like just the, porcelain children broken children. that is actually it's a light motif in this there's there's a couple times where dolls are a motif in this it also sums up the feeling rather well because this the, the book of stories triumphs ver- traffics very strongly in feelings of discomfort and alienation um I, I, again i would call that the vice double hitter for montreal so it's not a light read uh it's a lot of these stories are quite quick is a thing I will say. The some of them are longer, uh, but the majority, I'd say, the average length for these stories is maybe two and a half, three pages, and they're worth reading for that. They're, they're worth reading because they do capture, I think, quite well and quite evocatively that sort of juncture, uh, which is unique and I think still relevant to the discourse of Canada. Uh, yeah, cool. That that was from Anvil Press, by the way, which has also furnished us with our next book, which I imagine is also somewhat uncomfortable because it is yeah, called uh, Trauma, Trauma Head. Head. So, yeah, it's a poetry book. Um, it's a three-piece poetry book. Um, it's honestly gruesome to read, not because it's, like, just emotionally hard, because so before I go into a review, I want to give a little bit of context and background regarding 
Trauma Head and the author. So Trauma Head, written by L. Kraljil Gardner? Kral, uh, uh, Krahil? Oh, um. Kraljil? Kraljil. Hold on. Let me just uh, check the Envil Press page. Oh, sorry. It's, there's not an L. That's a Kral, K-R-A-L-J-I-I. Kralji, yeah. Kralji? Let's, let's say Kralji. Gardner. Um, she had a stroke. She was out with her family, and she had oh a mini stroke. So it was a temporary stroke. It wasn't like a full clog in her brain, mm-hmm. but it was something that stopped the flow and then continued. And it was actually a symptom of uh, a rupture, not a rupture, sorry, a tear in the lining of one of her ar- arteries. Oh. So, yeah. So it's like, it's a rough situation she lost the sensation uh, on half her, her on her left side on her the entirety of her left side and basically she wrote this book about the process and the first section is the actual what happened is her f- like her, her from her point of view the falling down the like being there with everyone and all of a sudden being on the floor and like not having that consciousness not being able to respond and then the second uh, section is um figuring out what it is what to do about it and all of that and the third section is more of her healing process and um it's as the media release describes a long poem memoir that tracks the author's experiences throughout this regaining familiarity with herself after having a trauma head you know like having such a yeah. terrible set thing and like she's also relatively young it's very rare not very rare but it's like it's not something that's very common and um one thing that i did do with this book and i don't usually do this is instead of actually started reading it in this order i started reading from the notes and then i turned back into mm-hmm. i started with the notes and in the notes she describes um a lot of the things that she took from to write the book, including a lot of the medical records. She took like actual just phrases, like entire sentences from the medical records and put those into her poems, into the poem. And oh, Charles Wilsoning it a little bit. Yeah. And um, some of them. And then she tries to explain like the actual medical situation so that we're not so completely lost because mm-hmm. she does. I mean, she did have to live with this for um, about two and a half years, like the recovery process is a long process. Yeah. Even though it was like a temporary, like it was a mini stroke, as they call it, you know, like it's still something that's it's, it's pretty big. And like the fear of just not being there anymore because something like that, like messing up with an artery like mm-hmm. that, it's it's big. Well, I would say there's no situation where you can say I had a stroke and follow it up with no big thing. It's no, yeah, not important. My minor took two aspirin, went away. <laughs> no, like if you have a stroke, yeah. that's a life changing event. It sometimes is. permanently, most yeah. of the time permanently. And something so. that really stuck to me from the notes section is that uh, she also put in statistics. Um, each minute, a st- so she, uh, each minute a stroke treatment is delayed. The average patients lose 1.9 million brain cells, 13.8 billion synapses. Uh, synapses are like the connections yes. between brain cells, in case you don't know, and 12 kilometers of axonal ex- fibers. On average, 20% of strokes in patients younger than 45 uh, involve dissections. 50% of patients with vertebral artery dissections experience no neurological deficit, which is her case. Like, yeah. 
she was the lucky 50 percent 25 percent have moderate to severe deficits 21 percent experience mild deficits only which is really interesting because it means a higher percentage of people experience moderate to severe uh, than mild it's it's like the highest percentage is mm. nothing at all second highest percentage is severe third highest percentage is mild and then four percent um pass on <laughs> like the not so great part yeah and yeah. the thing is she does include uh, references to those statistics and references to all these medical terms in throughout the poems and it, if i hadn't read the notes before i would be so lost and so not into it and the thing about this this book is that it's just gruesome to read emotionally gruesome because you go through her head and how she was feeling in those moments and like honestly i just wanted to cry and like cry and cry and cry because i cannot fathom having like fearing just one second you're fine one second everything is great and just and the next it's gone You know, everything's changing and like it's literally a thing that happens in 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. That is life or death. And with no predictor. No, like nothing. She was just healthy. She was just fine. She was in the park with her family having a barbecue, like having fun. And all of a sudden she was on the floor. And so. These <laughs> things, a lot of cardiac issues, the thing about them is that they'll, the drop off period with things like cancer, they kill you gradually and you can see it happen. With cardiac issues, it's, I'm in bad health, and then something happens. Yeah. Like there's a sudden, with heart attacks, with strokes, with things, especially like brain aneurysms. Because, well, one example I will go to on this, E.E. E. Cummings, for example. He was, he died of a brain aneurysm, age of 64, he was chopping wood. He felt fine that morning, as fine as he was. He was, you know, he was in pain. A lot of times he had back pain, but he didn't, his doctor didn't tell him, hey, Eddie, don't move. Like, don't, don't, Hattie, don't move, take it easy, avoid, avoid that. But the thing is, if you have a brain aneurysm, there's no predictors. It's something that can just happen like that. That's why it's one of Sterling Archer's biggest fears. And honestly, I, I still don't know if I liked it or not. Like, it's a, actually a great read. Um, but I don't think it's possible to judge it as in good or bad or like, or any, any of those terms because it's so raw and it's so emotionally, Yeah, it's so emotionally charged and it's so hard to work through it. But at the same time, it's such an amazing read. I actually started reading it and tried to read it in my head, but I couldn't do that. I had to read it out loud because the words do have a flow and they do have a rhythm to it. And it is also a very visual poem. It is a very visual book. The poetry does have a specific look to it and the way she organizes it on the page does tell a lot of the story as well which i find fascinating in poetry and that's one of the things that i actually really liked about this book yeah i was gonna say because i looked like briefly i looked at the book when um jake was doing his review and uh like you said y you should if you want to read this book most probably read it out loud because it's not a classical poem you know like made up of Um, God, I don't know what these words in <laughs> English are. Six sonnets on my stroke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're not sonnets or anything like that. They're more modern, um, modernly <sighs> structured. And they're, and they're yeah. so open, mm -hmm. which is something that I really did enjoy. It's just 
it's and if you don't know her story nothing none of it will really make sense you need to understand mm-hmm. like these struggles to ex- like understand where she's writing it from and it's also interesting that she actually included um a lot of her exams at the end of the book like the actual like scanned copies of her exams um and i feel that that's just Mm -hmm. really nice because after reading this book you do feel a sense of like i care about this person i have never met her Mm -hmm. i probably never will i've never seen her in my life and again don't know where she what she does don't know like i don't know anything about her but the fact that i read this book and i was became so intimate with her journey her process um you develop this caring and you want to know is she well now yeah mm-hmm. you know and I yeah I, if you're not emotionally available for this i <laughs> wouldn't recommend this book <laughs> but oh, yeah. it's definitely an amazing read to really get in there and try to understand um what someone goes through when their lives is turned upside down like that mm-hmm. i have a question for you so usually with um poem books let's say you know like anthologies or stuff like that uh you can go into a page read the poem and you wouldn't be too lost because um poems are you know they're individually done right is it like that in this book or are the poems related to one another mm-hmm. would you need to they have an idea to you know like they're not even like because the thing is like each page isn't a poem they're mm-hmm. kind of in the shape where it's like a really long poem is the entire book. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a story told through yeah. poems here. Yeah. Uh, the poems aren't really self-contained. And it's so, like, technically there are three major poems, mm-hmm. but, like, they're kind of already connected and they flow into each other. Okay. And it's really hard. You can't really open a page because some pages have literally, like, two words. Yeah. Some That's pages have an entire block of text. <laughs> Other pages have four words or something like that. So it's it's really about going through this journey with her. From the look of it, it seems like a very well, not tactile reading is what I've heard it described as for a lot of, um, uh, well, I, I would say modern, but techn- aren't we postmodern at this point? I don't know. Uh, current poetry uses that because a lot of it is read at events, and because of mm-hmm. that, when it is formatted onto the page to convey that. This experience, especially with the way your eyes move, the sort of the way you perceive it, and this this is what just giving a cursory read definitely seems to be happening quite, quite effectively because it, it the typography determines the mood, much as the framing. Even um, putting ty- like t- typing words on top of the other to mimic the fumbling and mm-hmm. foggy sensation. Well, it uh, opens with a quote from Soren Kierkegaard saying, "I feel like a wor- uh, a letter printed backwards on the line." I mean. Which is Damn. well, that's a, that's a good and it would like honestly, there are moments that that is exactly what it feels like, and some of the pieces, some of sentences are printed backwards. Let me see. It'll. Oh man. Yeah, they're entirely printed backwards. That there? is so weird to scan. Because you can do it if you look at it straight, but you can't oh, skim read. It's like yeah. ah, interesting. Damn. Yeah, a, a really fascinating book. Um, Definite feeling of disorientation and. Yeah, um, so it's definitely success it's, it's a respect. hard book. Like if you don't, if you're not ready for it, I don't recommend it. But it's something that, at the same time, it's a matter of you just gotta go through it. You know, like mm-hmm. you just gotta read, and you have to go through it with her. It's difficult, but it's worth reading. Yeah, 
All right, that's a pretty swelling endorsement for this. So check out uh, the knockoff Eclipse if you've ever lived in Montreal or if you ever want to, <laughs> and check out Trauma Head for a pretty powerful investigation of well, well, trauma. I don't think there's another. There's a better. I don't think there's a better word for it yeah, in this mm-hmm. context. Uh, we're going to close out the show with some musical shout-outs in case you want to uh, see some events, bolster your spirits with uh, the Kits Classics. Yeah, doing that again. Um, that is Kits Classics and the Worlds Beyond, the 21st season. Uh, you It features the Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky ah, you tricked me, uh, <laughs> piano trio and the Ravel, and Ravel Kaddish, performed by violinist Angelina Cavadas, cellist uh, Alex Kramer, pianist Anna Levy, clarinetist Johanna Hauser. Uh, that is by donation at the Mel Lehan Hall on Saturday, April Sunday, April seventh. Say that three times fast at <laughs> four p.m. Uh, if you're, if you know, well, I am a Tchaikovsky guy, so I was disappointed by that. But the um, if you're in the mood for some Handel, uh, not, not sure why, uh, you can uh, check out uh, the Pacific Baroque Orchestra in Handel Coronation Anthems. That is on April fourteenth at the Chan Center. Um, Actually, the coronation anthem didn't be too bad. Just the Messiah is really long. Like it's 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 four hours, and two of them are the same general note. Four hours is so, long, yeah. Like like it's it's it, 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 it's it's a long thing. I, I, I think Mahler is at my limit. Like uh, I I don't think I can do four hours. Uh, yes, but this is uh, going on at the Pacific Baroque or- at the Chan Center rather on April fourteenth. Uh, the coronation anthems and ode for the birthday of Queen Anne. Woo! Uh, the long instrumental opening of this work. Uh, this is a bit from the uh, um, press releases. The long instrumental opening of this work remains one of music history's great examples of how to greatest examples of how to build anticipation and tension. Gripping. Um, uh, I, I have no doubt he's wrong. I have no, I have no doubt that that's right. Uh, this was, her, uh, but uh, it's relevant because it was heard during the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, in uh, May twenty. Somebody played this, uh, played Handel here, uh, the coronet, uh, the, um, the the ode for the birthday of Queen Anne. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> if you're really into the royal, to the royal family, I mean, some people are. I mean, somebody will recognize that. Uh, but it's probably pretty good uh, if they if they approved it. Probably probably, probably pretty all right. Pretty, pretty dope. Um, uh, this is uh, actually a sort of uh, hearkening uh, for EMV's captivating 50th anniversary season. Uh, which is again from the press release, but you know, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, because there is also Handel's setting of Zadok the priest, the first of four anthems, uh, which has been in. Oh, oh, sorry, my my apologies. I believe yes, the first of the anthem is a setting of Zadok the priest, which does seem pretty interesting. Does mm-hmm. seem pretty captivating. So if you're up for that, check it out. Also check out Kit's classics, Trauma Head, The Knockoff Eclipse, uh, Forever. No, that's a different guy. Um, this has been the Arts Report. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Lua. I'm Sarah. And, uh, well, we'll see you next week. Cheers.